If you were in a horror movie, this would be the part where the used car you just bought doesn't start. But you're not in a horror movie, and you found your car on Carfax.com. With Carfax, you won't have to overpay for a used car because you'll know its value. Shop great deals at the all-new Carfax.com. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today i'm jackie the first i am i am jackie the first i am jackie zabrowski here to tell you about the page seven and wizard and the bruiser live show in january it's gonna be a hoot of a time we're gonna be partying down in chicago pontiac michigan milwaukee wisconsin hello you can get your tickets at lastpodcastnetwork.com slash p7 live i think you might like it let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on, shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Boom, we can't get fooled again. Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Ben Kissel here, hanging out with Travis Morningstar. How are you, Travis? Ben, I have a little something for you. You I do? Know, I know you, you know, we don't exchange gifts. No? But, uh, you know, it's almost Christmas. We're getting there. And uh, I wanted, I saw this, and I and I really thought of you. Okay. Uh, so I want to give you your <gasps> Christmas present. If oh, you, my God. If you would just describe... What Travis has just given me, wrapped in a beautiful red bow, is my favorite new drink. Yes, some people say it's for children, but I say it's also for people who like to drink alcohol. It's called Pedialyte. I have a bottle of Pedialyte for you here. This is absolutely amazing. It's 35 calories per serving, and we are looking at 370 milligrams of sodium, 9 grams of carbohydrates. We got a bunch of sugars in there as well, and 0 grams of protein. This is exactly what the body needs. Yes, I mean, on tour, Ben has taken <laughs> to uh, to drinking sort of Pedialyte cocktails. Hey, buddy, because I'm getting older now. No, I, I need to be I, taking care of myself. I think this is a good step in the right direction. And I went to the I went to the Pedialyte website, mm-hmm. and right on the homepage, there's an image of a man sitting on his kitchen floor. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, this is exactly where I wanted to get the information about Pedialyte. And they yeah. do give you some uh, some cocktails. Uh, so I, I want to give you some like some cocktails really? that you could. Use. Yeah, so um, let's see. Mix three olives, uh, orange flavored vodka, fresh squeezed orange juice, uh, and Pedialyte for a nice little orangey, citrusy kind of uh, kind of cocktail with the Pedialyte there. Um, Wait, olives and oranges? No, so it's a brand. Three olives. Oh, three olives. I see. Three okay. olives is the brand. Or, uh, or you can do grape flavored vodka and ginger ale plus Pedialyte. Uh, for uh, a little drink they called the Transfusion Crush. There it is. Yeah. It is better for you than your Red Bull vodkas. It gives you the pep and the step that you need to go and be the best you that you can be. I'm so pro Pedialyte. I'm hoping they start advertising. I just feel like 
It's the rock star drink of choice. I mean, this is the new two-in-one shampoo conditioner. Is this the, is incredible. Is the Pedialyte alcohol drink? You're you're like uh, Ethan Hawke in First Reformed, where he poured Pepto Bismol in his whiskey. I've always said that about me, just like Ethan Hawke in First Reformed. Never saw the movie, but I've always said that. Great film. Uh, well, thank you so much, Travis. I yeah. really appreciate. I just that wanted to dip. ring in the holiday. Well, it's extremely, yeah. it, it's, it's strangely, extremely sweet. Thank you. Uh, a little bit later on in today's episode, we're going to be speaking weed. We're talking cannabis and specifically cannabis equity when it comes to. Um, Communities that have been most devastated by the war on drugs. We need to make sure that they are the first in line to get licenses once weed is legal. So we're going to be speaking with a dude named Alex Fabian. He is one of the strategic advisors uh, in San Francisco for the San Francisco Equity Group. And it's a interesting conversation. I think you're going to learn a lot. Certainly both Travis and I learned a lot when it comes down to Writing wrongs that have been going on in this country for a long time. It's great cannabis is getting legalized across the country. I think we're making great waves when it comes to more rational debate on marijuana, on what it can do, how it can benefit you. Obviously, Major League Baseball has done a way or they want to get rid of opioids when it comes to Major League Baseball players using opioids to curb their ailments and to try to help themselves deal with all the pains of the job. However, Major League Baseball has now allowed them to use weed, uh, to use marijuana when it comes to their muscle issues or whatever they might be going through. So we are making great strides in the right direction when it comes to the legalization of weed. But as this process goes on, we need to remember the communities that were most devastated by the war on drugs. So we speak with Alex about that, and I think it's a great conversation. Yeah, I mean, he and he hints at how the Ameri- how America should be kind of thinking about weed as a powder keg for the economy, like blowing Absolutely. it up because it's it is so much underutilized. Like we could become Champagne France, Ooh. but for weed, and we have the perfect terroir, as he mentions mm-hmm. in the interview, uh, to do that. I love it. Uh, And of course, when we talk about the conversation surrounding the idea of reparations, specifically for the African-American community, this is one of the ways, this is one of the practical ways that something like that could be achieved, or at the very least, uh, a step closer uh, to achieving, again, righting the wrongs uh, of this country's horrific history, specifically when it comes to the drug war. We're also going to talk a little bit about the Space Force. Because evidently, uh, we're we're going to do it. It's real. We're going to space and Buzz Lightyear, you know, everyone can channel their inner Buzz Lightyear. We're going to have a lot of space warriors. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And also some good news in a bipartisan effort. Federal employees for the first time will now be given paid parental leave. That's 2.1 million federal employees will get paid parental leave for the first time. So that is a little positive news here going into the holidays. First, I want to talk about something that we've talked about before on this show, specifically with Dr. Robert Fetrakis, regarding the voting machines and how accurate are they. When we talk about the Russians interfering in our election via memes on Facebook, when we talk about uh, corrupt uh, gerrymandering, when we talk about the corruption of uh, money, in our democratic process, how it undermines everything. One of the biggest issues that is not talked about is voting machines getting your vote wrong. If it looks like a robot, 
Ben has a, a suspicious eye on it. Oh, yeah, I do, my it, friend. It just has to look, has to look like a, an electronic box, and, and he's got his eye locked on it. Well, this is uh, written in an op-ed by a dude named Richie Torres, and he talks about uh, ES&S. Uh, of course, that is one of the companies that owns the election voting machines. Also, Express Vote XL. In Pennsylvania this year, they had a new, again, robot, like Travis said, so we can't trust it, number one. But they had some new voting machines. They tested it out in a Pennsylvania election, a local election, and evidently the results were horrible. Some machines were unable to tabulate yes, no questions at all. In some races, there were severe undercounts, including one judicial candidate who received an implausible zero votes. According to the machine's false reporting, another candidate won by roughly 1,000 votes, but the Express Vote XL machine reported 15 votes cast total weeks later ESNS has still not determined the root cause of the malfunctions it sounds like a nightmare right now and New York City is probably going to be the next place where we're going to be dealing with these huge hugely flawed machines because the people in power are benefiting from these companies for example the uh new york city board of elections executive director is a dude named mike ryan now mike ryan benefits from express vote xl he ignored the strong opposition to this product by numerous good government groups and noted election experts. Security experts agree the most secure, reliable, and hack-proof option for voting is by having voters fill out paper ballots on which they color in their choices by hand, then insert them into the scanners. Unlike the optical scan ballots most New Yorkers are accustomed to, Express Vote XL system transmit voter selections for tabulation via a machine-generated barcode. So even if a voter has given a paper receipt that appears to reflect their choices have been made, it may not match the information transmitted in the barcode. So this is something that really has to be taken seriously. We saw a little bit of this when it came to Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz, uh, when they were, of course, battling it out for the Senate. People said they voted for Cruz, then it went to Beto, and people said they voted for Beto and it went to Cruz, although I do believe it was mostly people who said they voted for Beto uh, that had their vote flipped. So this is called vote flipping and vote stripping. We see vote stripping uh, like what Catherine Harris did in Florida when she purged 90,000 people from the voter rolls, and then we see vote flipping like what happened in 2004 in Ohio when they moved the voting machines down to, I believe it was South Carolina. And the vote initially went to John Kerry. Next thing you know, in a magical turn of events, uh, the votes went to George Bush. So this is something to keep in mind when voting. And it's one of those hard conversations because it totally undermines every single thing we're taught to believe about our democratic process. If we can't trust the voting machines, we can't trust our government. And we really have uh, a situation that is dire when it comes to our country as a whole. So I'm pushing, proposing, Ben Kissel proposal, paper ballots, everything needs to be checked out by hand. And I just do not trust these multinational, massive corporations. I mean, for example, ES&S, Mitt Romney was on the board. Hmm. Mitt Romney worked for a voting machine company. Then they put the voting machines everywhere. It's insane. And on a different level, we had what Brian Kemp did with Stacey Abrams. 
you know, where Brian Kemp was in charge of the voter rolls. Yeah. And then magically, he was able to win a narrow victory after he purged tens of thousands of people from the voter rolls. So this is something that we have to think about as a country. It gets almost zero press, but I just find it to be extremely important. So I wanted to share this uh, with you. Uh, you know, voter suppression is a it's a time honored tradition. Time honored. They're so good at of it. Of the GOP. So uh, you can't. Well, honestly, it's the people. I'm not even going to say this. I think this is one of those unique bipartisan situations. Sure. Because both both sides uh, have done this over the years, and obviously as the parties sort of shift and change, uh, they have different motivations for who they want to flip or who they want to strip uh, votes for. But you're correct; it usually is people of color, poor people, and I think uh, that uh, are the ones who are you know exiled from democracy. A, I think it was a Trump aide who was recently caught on a hot mic, say, literally saying, "Yeah, that's what you, <laughs> voter suppression is like our thing. We got we, 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 yeah. we got to keep it keep it rolling." And, of course, we had three million more votes cast for Hillary, but I don't really give that argument too much credence because she knew the system. She knew you had to win an electoral college system. If it was the popular vote, she ran a great campaign. But because we have an electoral college, for better or for worse, uh, it didn't work out for her. Yeah. But anyway, let's do a little bit of positive news here. So 2.1 million federal government employees will now get paid parental leave. Uh, this was part of a massive bill. What was this? $800 billion? It's, yeah, just below $800 billion. This is the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, it already passed the House with bipartisan support. Oh, by the way, Donald Trump is impeached. I guess we should have said that. Well, yes. But it's, it, I, I, I don't care. It's so weird that I just don't care. Because he's not going to be convicted in the Senate. The Queen took away his knighthood is what happened yes. on the evening last Wednesday, yes. Wednesday night. The Queen came and uh, she took his scepter away. Yep. And, she pulled um, out his pants and we laughed at his little winky. And uh, it's an embarrassment um, for the country as a whole, I think. Look, it does seem to... It did, like piss him off which is uh the letter was ridiculous so was stupid great. it was the, great the six-page letter to nancy pelosi is so dumb um i just feel like it's like watching a wrestling match where roman reigns is fighting i don't know let's say daniel bryant and maybe daniel bryant will get some punches in and the tide will turn a little bit and people are like can daniel do it but you know it's scripted and you know you're just one second away from a spear followed by a superman punch followed by another victory for roman reigns so that's it. Just seems we know the outcome. I'm I am so a little it's hard for me to care. Sick of the the discourse already, where it's like, right now there are thousands of first dates where the guy is saying to the girl like, well yeah he was impeached in the house, but I really doubt he's gonna he's gonna be removed in the Senate. It's like yeah okay we don't need to reiterate that we already we know. know we know we know it's not happening. We know it would take sixty six votes. It is not happening. But anyway, so I guess we did have to mention that because that is theoretically the biggest political well, news. You, you know, it's and, uh, whatever. It's historically uh, notable because we have now been in our lifetimes a part of two impeachments where both presidents were um, best friends with Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> yep. And, you know, it's so crazy to think about Mar-a-Lago and Jeffrey Epstein. I didn't realize that he met Virginia Goffrey. Yeah. At Mar-a-Lago. Yes. She, That's where, like, that was where, like, the... She lived in a poor community, like, miles away from Mar-a-Lago, where they got all the geez. help from. So when we talk about the pedophile ring that goes all the way to the President of the United States, it's even thicker 
than you would think because they literally were just at Mar-a-Lago also, for J- Jeffrey Epstein to scoop up and honestly rape. It's oh yeah, horrible. It, was, it was like a market. Um, it's the mar- it's the meat market. Yeah, yeah. but uh, I mean, speaking of pedophiles, it is the one year anniversary of Kevin Spacey's "Let Me Be Frank" video. Oh my God, was that a this? year ago? That was already? a year ago. I just read an article saying it was 10 years ago that Britney Murphy died. And yes. I was like, oh, my God, I'm getting so old. But that was already a year ago. That was ago? a year ago. Well, he released it it's so close to Christmas that nobody really commented on it. And it, it, have you watched it? I've seen it. It's, you've Is seen it, it still online? It's still online. Nothing happened. To, I mean, like, it's still there. <laughs> and it's like, if you haven't seen it, which I feel crazy because I'll, I'll mention this video and people won't know what I'm talking about. Kevin Spacey's Let Me Be Frank video oh, where he pretends to be Frank Underwood yeah. from from House of Cards and goes into this very uh, cryptic message about uh, about letting him, you know, it's sort of, the uh, it's under the guise of him coming back to House of Cards. He says, you haven't, you didn't actually see me die. You're not going to let this, you're not going to let uh, a bunch of like hearsay uh, influence your thinking about me. He's in the kitchen. He's I in, believe he's drinking a glass of wine. No, no, he has a, he has a, he has a Christmas apron on. And he is, he's holding a uh, coffee mug that says, oh, uh, God. God Save the Queen. And so there's all, and he, he, so he basically weird. threatens the sort of, estab- in it, he, he sort of threatens the establishment, whether that is Netflix or the cabal of pedophiles that run our government. He is making this sort of like assertion, like, you won't get rid of me because if I, I know go, where the bodies if are I buried. go down, you go down. But watch well, this video. It's a it's a year it's a year since it came out, and it is really like the weather vane of what 2019 would become about. Like, yeah. it is the it is the door that opened uh, into the Jeffrey Epstein thing, which is now yeah. ex- you know has captured the world's imagination about exactly what's happening at the at the upper echelons of our society. Honestly, we'll get back here to this uh, National Defense Authorization Act in one second. Ghislaine Maxwell needs to be arrested. I don't understand why she's not. I don't get why she's just out there running around, hanging out at IHOPs or whatever the hell she's doing. This woman brought him the children. It's like the Pied Piper taking these kids to this monster. I just don't get how everyone's like, ah, all these whatever. All, all ah. these people are, are in the wind. Like his modeling scout uh, is is no longer they don't know where he is either. Like it's disgusting. It's, it's all. It's all. It's all gone. Anyway, um. All right. Well, let's get back to this because this is actual good news for two million federal government employees. This was jammed into the National Defense Authorization Act again, uh, regarding paid parental leave. This bill was massive. Donald Trump, despite being an anti-interventionalist, certainly likes to throw money at the military and this bill is no different uh, other than it is slightly larger than most bills when it comes to funding uh, the military so the the defense bill includes 12 weeks of paid parental leave uh, of any employees who give birth adopt or foster a child and i thought that was actually a really important point uh, when it comes to fostering a child foster care of a child Uh, I think that's very important because it's difficult. A lot of people want to help out kids. A lot of people want to uh, show charity to others who might be in need. But if you have a full-time job, you can't can't be fostering a child. Uh, Of course, my parents did uh, immediate foster care or emergency foster care. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom, so we were able to swing it because my dad uh, was working as a truck driver. But a lot of families just simply can't because both people are working. So I just feel like this is a great 
thing that they put into this bill that other than that i probably do not like very much although i do kind of like space force the care thing for the federal employees that's a very smart small part of this bill otherwise very small it's like insignificantly small compared to the massive amount of money going to the military absolutely but you know space force i love space force are you fucking kidding me i'm gonna put my space force (laughs) cap on it is like officially now a real thing as soon as trump is out of office and i don't have i don't hate anyone but as soon as trump is out of office and i and i like the executive branch a little bit better uh, i'm gonna wear a space force hat I'm wearing it. Look, the merch is cool. We the all, merch is going to be cool. I don't wear hats, but I'm going to wear a shirt that says Space Force and be like, sign me up. If somebody gets me a Space Force mug, I'm not going to like throw it out. Well, Christmas comes once a year, my friend. Yeah, I got you a Pedialyte. Yeah. Where's my Space Force mug? Yeah, well, you but might no, get something like, in the also, future. Uh, the, the bill is like bloated and oh, crazy. Dude. And, uh, you know, Trump just took a bunch of people off food stamps, and we're we're spending almost eight hundred billion dollars on the space force. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, uh, Travis referring to the seven hundred thousand people uh, who Donald Trump said were not worthy of food. This is according to Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney. She is a Democrat out of New York. She says regarding paid family leave right now, we are one of only two nations in the world that does not provide our workers with any form of paid family or medical leave. Maloney added that when she was pregnant with her first child, she asked about her office's leave policy and was told what leave and that women just leave. Uh, So this is also very important if we want to talk about women in the workforce dropping out to go have children and not ever really coming back. This will allow them to stay within the workforce and continue to grow in these companies and hopefully become CEOs and so on. So she goes on to say, when this bill is signed into law, it will be a tremendous victory for 2.1 million federal employees who will no longer need to choose between being home with their new child or their paychecks. Some advocates expressed hope that if the largest employer in the nation now offers paid parental leave, other employers will follow suit. And obviously the largest employer in the nation is the United States federal government. So that's good news. I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? (laughs) It just seemed like the one one like nice thing got slipped into a huge, ugly But Travis, sometimes you have to look at the bright side of certain things in this doom and gloom world. Well, let's look at some of the the lighter stories of the year then because it's the end of the year, wrap up. Are you going to get you want to get goofy? Let's get I mean it's a little goofy. Okay. Yeah. Travis, these I've are, always said that about you. You're these, a little goofy. These are stories that I think maybe got a, a little bit overlooked with the the big, you know, lead up to our president getting impeached. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, okay. So three Indiana judges drunken brawl turned shootout. Do you did you hear about this story? <laughs> oh, no, but I love it. Uh, this is coming from Talking Points Memo. Uh, not one, not two, but three extremely wasted Indiana co- County judges got into a nasty fight with strangers in a White Castle parking lot in Indianapolis <laughs> after the three of them unsuccessfully attempted to enter a strip club. There's a lot going Wait, on. How did they <laughs> unsuccessfully enter a strip club? Strip clubs, if you walk by them, they suck you in because they want your money. If I recall the story, it's because they were so these three judges were so hammered, they were not let into the strip club. Too hammered for a strip club. Usually they see hammered people as marks and they're like, Come on in, give us your money and get the hell out. But after hours of heavy drinking, judges Andrew Adams, Bradley Jacobs, and Sabrina Bell got into a verbal, then physical altercation with two men. Adams and Jacobs were sh- both shot in the melee. 
melee. They survived. Uh, and now all three judges have been temporarily suspended by the Indiana Supreme Court. But all this <laughs> happened in a White Castle parking lot. Judges. Three judges who always seem so like the idea of a judge. It, it doesn't seem like they have preferences or even like appetites for White Castle. And here they are wasted. That's the power of booze. And fighting a passerby. Apparently it was a car that drove by. Uh, who honked at them and then they <laughs> Sabrina Bell one of the judges yeah. flicks the guy off in the car <laughs> the car spins around and they all just start getting into a fight and then uh, one of the guys from the car shoots two of the judges okay. in the White Castle parking lot just a just a, Honestly, a, a this holly is, jolly story for the end of the year this is one of my favorite stories about judges because as we all know judges are crazy egomaniacs yes. in many ways I've never met a judge I liked and I've met a few and uh, so here's another one. Baltimore Mayor Catherine Pugh pleaded guilty to four counts of wire and tax fraud in November after she got caught running a three-year self-dealing scheme with her Healthy Holly Children's Books <laughs> after an organization would pay her thousands of dollars, in some cases over $100,000 for the books. Pugh would set aside several thousand copies she had printed and keep them in warehouses instead of completing the order. She'd then resell the hidden books when other companies put in their orders. Her campaign promise to crack down on corruption in Baltimore did not work out as planned. This was in Baltimore? Yeah. Oh, the poor citizens of Baltimore. Healthy, they have such corrupt politicians. Healthy Holly children's books. The irony is almost too much. Uh, and then the last one, I think we did maybe, the firing of Iowa's Tupac-loving whistleblower. Yeah, we talked about that hero. Uh, but yeah, so we'll just, we'll, Iowa Department of Human Services director and Tupac superfan, Jerry Foxhoven, a 66-year-old civil servant known for regularly emailing inspiring Tupac lyrics to his employees and holding Tupac Fridays, was suddenly <laughs> fired in June. Though Governor Kim Reynolds refused to tell the press why she had asked Foxhoven to step down a, a mass email he had sent the day before his ouster to 4,300 employees reminding them of Tupac's upcoming birthday caused people to suspect that Foxhoven's obsession with the late 90s rapper was his downfall. Oh, then, that's pathetic. Foxhoven filed a lawsuit against the state government for whistleblower wrongful discharge and the alleged cause for his mysterious firing came to light. He was about to expose how Reynolds' office had been pressuring him to continue paying a former employee who had left his agency to become the governor's chief of staff. So it wasn't Tupac. It wasn't Tupac. It, wasn't it Tupac. was actually much worse than that. He's a whistleblower. He's a double hero. It was a double hero move. Okay. And we may have actually spoken about that on side stories. I don't I know if we did talk about it. that might have been even on last stream. <laughs> I think that might have, was a last he stream. He may thing. have been hero of the week on side stories. Could, maybe. Maybe. I, I don't remember, remember that story. Anyway, that's very good. All right. Well, before we get to Alex Fabian, just lastly, Space Force. So this is, as Donald Trump calls it, very important for the future. He says um, he says that the United States needs to have um, we need to have a more focused importance on, quote, the space domain. Uh, this is according to former NASA astronaut Tom Jones. He said this on Saturday. He said, I think it recognizes the importance of space to our defense. It recognizes that we have these critical satellites up there that help us do intelligence gathering and reconnaissance and instant communications and getting information about early warnings you know launches from enemies towards us so go out there watch the uh, new star wars movie and then step right outside and realize that that future isn't far off the president signed by the way i, I misquoted i said 800 billion the bill the spending package was actually 1.4 trillion and space force is the first new military service in over 70 years so it was 1.4 trillion 
dollars in a spending bill that is a lot of pork trump said on friday space is the world's new war fighting domain so isn't that nice we finally were able to get to space and then because we're humans we're like this would be a great place for war yeah and so indeed he is probably right he's probably right in the sense that our future is about to look like a uh, a sci-fi movie that's rated 50 percent on rotten tomatoes as the new star wars is. Some people don't like the new Star Wars. I haven't seen it. I'm not a huge Star Wars guy. My my, What I have heard from my friends who love Star Wars, they say if you like Star Wars, you'll like it. Yeah. That's what they say. I don't know. Um, so this is, uh, the program has a budget of $40 million, And again, speaking of splashes in the, in the uh, you know, just drips in the bucket, $40 million in a $1.4 trillion spending bill is not, that's like a rounding error. Um, <laughs> but the program has a $40 million budget with 200 new Space Four recruits. This is like the movie. This is like, oh my God, I love that movie so much. What am I thinking of? You know what I'm talking about. Big bugs, battleships, starship, starship troopers. Starship troopers. Oh my God. They got recruits and they have a budget. The U.S. Army has a budget of more than $180 billion with 480,000 active duty soldiers. This is what Jones had to say. He said, what's important is to bring the talent together so they can do their job with less friction and less red tape and acquire the launchers and satellites that we need to rapidly put our assets back up if they're ever attacked. So the Space Force is real. 2020, yeah. it's coming at you hot. Yes, yes. This is definitely the the dream of somebody who did watch Starship Troopers and realized that it, it did not realize that it was satire. It was not supposed no, to. You're not no, supposed we, to. If you see a bug stomp on it because they're going to get control one time and then you're going to have a hard time dealing with it. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. I love that movie is so fun. Um, but anyway, so there we go. We got paid parental leave, talking voting machines, look into that subject. ESNS, Express Vote XL, you know, these places are so corrupt, it's ridiculous, they're destroying our economy, um, and Space Force, and of course, those wacky little stories, although I don't know if one of those, one did involve a shooting, so I guess it wasn't wacky. They survived, though, and it was in a White Castle, so it is technically goofy. That is goofy. Yeah, you're right. Can you believe it's already December? And as much as I love getting into the seasonal spirit, this month can be a bit stressful too. We've all got a long list of things to do for the holidays. If life insurance is one of the things weighed down on your list, Policy Genius might be able to help you cross it off. They'll help you find the right life insurance at the best price and do all the work to help you get covered. Policy Genius makes finding the right life insurance a breeze. In minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price. You could save $1,500 or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. I couldn't believe how easy their team made my search for the right insurance. And thanks to Policy Genius, I've got one less thing to do on my list. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy, they can also help you find the right home and auto insurance or disability insurance. So if you need life insurance but aren't sure where to start, why not start at policygenius.com? It only takes a few minutes to find the right life insurance policy, apply, and cross another thing off your to-do list. Policy Genius, when it comes to life insurance, it's nice to get it right. Okay, everyone, enjoy this interview with Alex Fabian. And again, he is a member, he's a strategic advisor to the San Francisco Equity Group. think this conversation is very important. It's all about weed, so you should enjoy it. Also, when it comes to weed legalization, oh, I forgot to mention Donald Trump raised the age to buy tobacco to 21. 
And this is what I speculate in this conversation as well, that Donald Trump may just sign an executive order to legalize weed. I think it's extremely possible. But if he does that, he's not going to do it in the way that it needs to be done, which is, again, uh, sharing the profits, giving the licenses to the communities that have been most devastated by the war on drugs. So enjoy this interview with Alex. Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Travis and I are honored to have uh, our next guest with us on A. Blinken's Top Hat. He is one of the strategic advisors of the San Francisco Equity Group. Alex Fabian is with us. Thank you so much for being on the show, Alex. Thank you guys so much for having me. Really excited to talk about cannabis equity policy and all the uh, fun politics that goes alongside it. Dude, honestly, we are thrilled as well. Cannot wait to get into this subject. So as we know, racial disparity, specifically when it comes to cannabis arrests, is massive. According to recent studies, uh, black people were arrested for possession at a rate of eight per 100,000 and white people were arrested at a rate of two per 100,000, four times less. So when we talk about racial disparity and cannabis and cannabis arrests, and now of course we're going to talk about that in the context of marijuana legalization, what does your program what are you working on? What are you trying to attain with this equity program? Absolutely. So Fundamentally, this is the point of cannabis equity policy when it comes to uh, looking at legalized cannabis in, uh, you know, in the economy. And essentially, cannabis social equity policy is the recognition by the state specifically mm -hmm. that material, emotional and physical harm was done to specific communities during the war on drugs. Right. And if there is to be a legal cannabis industry then by right, restitution must be made to those same communities. Yes. Now, that is facilitated by regulation on the legal cannabis industry, mandating ownership by those affected communities. In San Francisco, as it is across the country, this is specifically the African-American, the Latino, mm. uh, and in San Francisco's context, also the Pacific Islander community suffered uh, greatly under very, very disproportionate amounts of cannabis uh, enforcement. Right now, I'm a white uh, I'm a white guy, and I grew up in New Jersey in a you know an upper middle class area. And for me, aside from looking over my shoulder every once in a while as a kid, I mean cannabis was essentially legal. Absolutely, and I've been saying this. We've said this for yes. a long time. If you're wealthy, uh, if you are of a certain complexion, weed has been allowed in culture for a much much longer time than currently uh, what what has been allowed in communities, specifically poor communities of color. Well, and let's refocus that into the, you know, San Francisco is such a great example of this because it's a tiny city constrained by geography and its own population. It's also a city and county in one, which makes like the legislative and enforcement stuff very interesting. Right. But San Francisco was, you know, summer of love, 1968. I mean, this was the cannabis capital of America for the 60s and that whole generation. If you were white and smoking weed in SF, you're fine. You smoke it on the street. Right. Nobody cared. It never mattered. To be fair, that 60s weed, from what I've heard, was pretty weak compared oh, to was. that great herb we have now. Ooh. Well, that's one of the things we start getting the old heads onto the new stuff and they kind of freak out. Like, <laughs> exactly. No, there's a process, guys. We're going to work you up to this. <laughs> It's like you said on the uh, the last side stories you were talking about. Not everything has to have weed in it. <laughs> that is true. 
That is I very, agree with fully. <laughs> very, very true. But when we talk, you know, obviously in this political cycle, there has been mm. co- uh, some conversation, and, and this conversation sort of persists uh, throughout political cycles. But in this cycle, I think specifically uh, with the rise of someone like Bernie Sanders, when we talk mm-hmm. about reparations, when we talk about the historical roadblocks that have been put in mm-hmm. the way for certain communities, when we hear the word reparations, when it comes to cannabis equity, is this one way of kind of achieving that, of, of sort of giving back to the communities that have been most devastated by our economic and drug laws? Yes. And and I stand by that unequivocally. I fully believe, and I'll give you, as it helps, let me give you a little bit of background of how I got into uh, the cannabis industry and how I got into working in the equity group. Okay. Because that will shine a little bit of light onto, I think, why people in my position would be doing so. So uh, I was a worker in the tech industry, not a executive or anything. I was one of the the phone peons making the phone calls, selling the stuff. Uh, if you spend enough time in that industry, especially here in San Francisco, you do find it to be essentially extractive. It does not put anything back into the city. Right. And my experience as a tech worker in San Francisco was incredibly alienating. And I did not feel connected to where I lived. And I did not feel that I was contributing to where I was making my home. Big tech and alienation seem to go hand in hand in many ways. It's they are the same. Uh, that's a whole nother. I mean, if you ever want to get into uh, outside the cannabis stuff, I mean, I can give you guys an insider look into some of the ways that these tech companies are, let's call it interesting internally. I love it. A future, uh, a conversation for a future episode. Sounds great to me. Absolutely. But so essentially I left uh, and I was privileged enough to have some resources to be able to raise some capital to try to get into the cannabis industry. And I was uh, seeking to do so. And in San Francisco, uh, in order to participate in the market, you have to engage with the equity program. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had uh, you know, made overtures to an individual and started speaking with uh, someone who was a member of our group. And eventually he brought me in and really explained you know, how cannabis legalization was going to affect the specifically minority communities in San Francisco, right. how they had been affected, and yeah. how that was going to lead to essentially the same issue we saw with tech, which is an industry, has an opening, comes in, sets up in the city, doesn't help anybody that lives right. in the city, leaves, and then essentially you have this entire cohort of people that are already being priced out. Well, absolutely. I mean, we've seen our middle class completely gutted. Uh, they've been hollowed out yes. from, from the middle. And uh, then these big companies, they just get up and leave, and all they have in their wake is devastation. Can you explain a little bit to our audience the difference between legalization and decriminalization? Because I have some friends who mm-hmm. are avid pot smokers who are much uh, even further left than I am, which I know that's a, mm-hmm. that's a stunner, obviously. There's a lot of people right. further left and right than me. <laughs> but when it comes to their ideas of legalization – it's interesting because they're actually more pro decriminalization as opposed to legalization. Can you explain a little bit of why someone might be pro decriminalization as opposed to legalization? Yeah. I mean, I can only give you the anecdotal evidence that I've encountered with my, you know, meetings and people in cannabis. I meet with people every day, conferences, all sorts of stuff. So, I mean, I do get a pretty wide swathe 
of uh, conversations. Yeah. The people that I find that are more in favor of decriminalization are very wedded sorry, not wedded. They are very concerned with cannabis culture mm -hmm. and they are extremely concerned with the commercialization of cannabis culture. They are extremely concerned with the idea that big tobacco is going to be involved, which they are. Right. Like, let's make no mistake. They are involved already. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like they are already there. Some of these concerns are not invalid. You know, and so basically, a decriminalization proponent would prefer if the industry stayed basically as small producers, you know, producing not super legally, but not super illegally. If you get caught with it, it's a, you know, a fine, but it's not going to be a business. It's not going to be regulated in the same way. It's not going to be, uh, you know, as in your face as legalized cannabis is. Now, one of my one of my concerns, and I want to hear your thoughts. I want to hear if mm -hmm. you think I'm right about this. When I talk with my friends who want to just see decriminalization as opposed to legalization, my understanding is even if it's decriminalized, it's still illegal to sell, and they oftentimes will put a, uh, a cap on how much you can have. Yes. Uh, and, of course, the fines are a very real thing for a lot of people in this country. Yes, they You are. give someone a $250 fine or a $500 fine, that's their rent money. I mean, that can set them back. That can make them homeless. I mean, that 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 echoes my issue is who's this going to be enforced on? Right, if exactly. If it's decriminalized, who was it enforced on to begin with? Weed's been decriminalized for me my whole life. Right. But if you're black, it hasn't been. Right. So can we can we talk a little bit about practically what does the equity program do for the people who are who have been disproportionately affected by? Uh, marijuana laws in the past like yep. what what does it mean to reach out to these people and say hey this equity program exists now and also you know to, to sort of piggyback on that when it comes mm -hmm. to these communities we need to really understand when you incarcerate someone for x amount of years x amount of months whatever it is you have torn apart a family you have dis you have uh shooken families to their core and I feel like we live in this society where everyone says you got to have a healthy home, you need a good family, you got the family that stays together is a family that thrives together. Meanwhile, we've had a government policy in place that has been ripping families apart for generations, which is a constant in our history and in our present. You've got it absolutely right. So, Travis, before I jump in on your question, I would like to follow Ben's because this is a core, core, core issue to me as an equity advocate. Uh, I describe what you just said, Ben, as the depopulating of people, places, and public spaces. Mm. So when you take one person who's been incarcerated, right, obviously there's an effect. You have removed them from their family, and that's traumatic, right, to begin with you know, because the family member's gone. You've also removed an income from the household, right? right? So that's within the household, right? You've lost a parent, you've lost an income. Uh, maybe you've lost insurance, depending yeah. on how that went. Uh, let's go to the, uh, the neighborhood outside the home. That individual is no longer spending money in the community, right? So you're losing sales taxes. You're losing any sort of, uh, you know, consumption tax that that person, by virtue of just being alive and in America, spends every day. Right. So you're depleting that, as well. Local businesses, their clientele gets denuded. Why are all these black businesses closing up? Well, I mean, half the clientele is locked up. This creates serious knock-on effects. Why can't people hang out in public parks? They're over-policed. Why are they over-policed? Because people were being arrested for cannabis in these public spaces that you can't even hang out in anymore. 
So when you put one person from a community and you incarcerate them, you create such a series of knock-on effects within Mm. that community that were not considered. Sort of the butterfly effect of the drug war. Absolutely. And we can see that in every area of these neighborhoods that have been affected by the war on drugs. I mean, it is... I mean, not dissimilar. I, I hate to use a comparison, but, you know, after World War Run, you have this, you know, generation of not a lot of like working age men. And you'll find that in these over policed communities because those men are generally in prison. Mm-hmm. And these populations then are not able to compete on the same level economically. They're not able to organize politically for their rights. They're not allowed or not able to have a community. You've also generally removed them from the voting rolls. And, you know, it's interesting interesting that you say men because that's sort of a a topic, and we'll get to uh, Travis's very great question here in just one second, but it's interesting you say men because also the war on drugs disproportionately targeted men, and again, mostly black men, which, as you mentioned earlier, uh, oftentimes they're supposed to have an income coming in. They're supposed to be supporting their Mm -hmm. family, which is why we've seen such a destruction of the American family, specifically in those in those in those communities. Absolutely. And how much, you know, I you know, we can say conservative, quote unquote, uh, propaganda from the 1980s onward was about the dissolution of the family, the inability of African-Americans to pave their own way to pull them up by their bootstraps. Well, it's really hard to pull yourself up yourself up by your effing bootstraps when uh, the one of the main earners in the household was put away for having an eighth of weed on them. Yeah. And is going to go away for 20 years. And of course, you say conservative, but of course, for many, many generations, for many yes. decades in this country, it was a bipartisan issue. Yeah. And that's, you know, I say conservative, quote, 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 because right. one, I think all those people were smoking weed. Uh, you know, you listen to Kamala Harris. Uh, you know, she claimed she was even while she was attorney general, which was an I, interesting claim. Nonsense. To <laughs> oh, I thought that was absolutely hilarious. But so then the the equity yeah. program does sort of yes. represent a shift in tides uh, for for these people. And and what what is your what is your role in sort of uh, espousing that message to the community? What what does that mean to actually take this message to people that have been affected by? the sort of draconian marijuana laws for sure so i'll tell i'll be the effect and then we'll go into what the actual regulation is so that we can kind of explain that a little bit further this is the primary effect that uh, i am seeking when i speak to these groups so this is specifically minority groups african-americans latinos pacific islanders filipinos in san francisco and the message that i want them to understand and the message that is key to a lot of uh our you know, outreach from the San Francisco Equity Group is the city does not owe you a handout. The city is not providing something out of the goodness of its heart as a jobs creation program. The city is righting a wrong that was done to you specifically with state backing. Right. And that's very difficult for some people, even these communities that have been over-policed for generations, that have, you know, have collective intergenerational trauma, that's difficult for a lot of people to swallow. And they do eventually understand when you just go through the facts of the matter, which is cannabis policy in, in America has, from the beginning, prohibition policy that is, been set to demonize minorities. Uh, Harry Anslinger and I believe, 1921, when he puts out the... Uh, the Marijuana Act specifically refers to 
African-Americans and Mexicans in the, the text of the bill as mm. a reason for banning the substance. I mean, from the beginning, this has been targeted enforcement of minority groups to curtail these communities. And by providing a timeline and really just reinforcing these facts, you are then able to get that community to really understand what is owed to them. Right. And when you understand that, you can have a very, very different conversation with one, the city, right? But two, with the cannabis operators, you know, it's like, all right, you want to come in here and make a lot of money. That's okay. Right. But we need to have a conversation about how that's going to work. Right. Well, and let's, Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into that. Uh, going back to tra uh, Travis's previous question regarding sure. the equity farm or the equity group, how are you getting or what are your plans to then get this industry mm -hmm. to get the licenses to communities that have been mostly devastated from the war? Absolutely. So let's use Travis as an example because it's an individual who begins this process. So to be an equity applicant in San Francisco, there's a couple of different things. Uh, you can do. You have to have lived in the city for a certain amount of time uh, between 1979 and 2018. Uh, you have to have attended a San Francisco school district for five years. Uh, you have to have been arrested for a cannabis crime or had a family member arrested for a cannabis crime hmm. or lived in. These are not you don't have to tick all of them, but it's like if you get three of these boxes, you're good to go. Okay. Uh, and you have lived in certain census tracts in the city that have been over policed, uh, specifically, you know, the African-American neighborhoods, Bayview, Hunters Point, Fillmore, uh, these areas that were, you know, over hit. Right. So. Let's say Travis, uh, his brother got arrested for selling weed when he was in high school. He lived in San Francisco for five years and he went to school. Travis qualifies to be uh, an equity applicant. So I am a business operator. So I wanna open a cannabis store in San Francisco. The rules state that I cannot do that unless I have an equity applicant as my partner who is a 40% owner of the business hmm. and also the CEO of the company. So Travis is the CEO of Alexander Fabian Industries, a cannabis company, okay. and he owns 40% of the company flat out. And that is just for me to get the option to apply in San Francisco for a cannabis permit. Now, is there any concern that you may not be able to find enough applicants or what has your experience no. been regarding people being like, Hey, sign me up. I'm ready to roll. We have verified uh, about uh, our group specifically has verified about 180 people wow. and there are about 350 verified equity applicants in the queue right now. There is immense demand. Okay. When people hear about this, they are extremely excited. Okay. Cannabis industry is cool. Uh, it's it's new. It's exciting. People are into it. Uh, and this is just my analysis. I think people are really excited about the idea of like working for a company that like makes a thing that you can like show other people like people really like that. And well, in absolutely. it's hard to do that. And of course, you, you take pride in your job and people. Yeah. Honestly, it is cool. That's it a is great cool. CEO of a weed store be like, yeah, dude, cool. I want to talk to you at this bar that I'm sitting. Well, at. then. So a good example of all of this stuff is is if we talk a little bit about. Uh, Sean Richard, who is opening yes. San Francisco's first black owned dispensary, who is a part of the equity group and also sort of a 
product of the whole sort of ethos and philosophy of it. Absolutely. So Sean is one of our founding members, uh, and he is in fact going to be the first equity applicant to open a dispensary in San Francisco. Mm. Uh, we've been sitting on the permit. Uh, it got approved last year on a Valentine's Day. So we've been waiting to open that store until this time. You can imagine that is quite expensive to do in San Francisco. Oh, my God. But, yeah, so we are incredibly excited. Uh, Sean is, uh, is the perfect example of the kind of person that benefits from the equity program. Uh, Sean was previously incarcerated for, uh, for selling narcotics. Uh, Sean had issues when he was growing up uh, with you know, violence and gang issues. Mm -hmm. Sean also spent his entire adulthood campaigning to get guns off the street in San Francisco with his um, his nonprofit Brothers Against Guns. Mm. Uh, he runs gun buybacks every year. He's, you know, he's really dedicated his life to like making the areas of San Francisco where he grew up safer. Right. And I mean, he's succeeded, frankly, because the way that these streets were in San Francisco 25 years ago bears no resemblance to the way they do now. And that is not really like because of policing, because there's like not that many cops in SF. So there's other reasons that that happened. And I frankly, I credit a lot of that to Sean. Right. And so he is the first equity applicant to, you know, receive this ability to open a store. And it's incredible how excited he is. That's awesome. It's incredible. As we were talking about earlier, when it comes to the wealth disparity, San Francisco mm -hmm. is ground zero for the wealth yeah. disparity happening in our country right now. The amount of homeless is devastating. Uh, right next, I saw a man take a public shit right outside oh, yeah. of the headquarters of Twitter. You know, it's like, it's oh, in, yeah, yeah, yeah. My brain, it was just cemented in my brain as what a great analogy for the erosion of the middle class. When we talk about getting the middle class back, this seems like such a great way through small business and, and through activism to regrow this crumbling middle class, this destroyed middle class. You're exactly right. I mean, that's the way I see it. When I viewed the equity program for the first time, uh, I viewed it as an operator. So I was someone who was attempting to get into the business here in the city. I very quickly realized that I couldn't afford to do that because right. if you don't have $10 million just sitting on hold, like you can't be a solo operator in San Francisco. So San Francisco specifically has an enormous problem with there is a, a large section of the working class that does still live here mm -hmm. and they do work, but they're generally employed as like contractors for the tech companies. There's not a lot of advancement. It's just, you know, you show up for work and you kind of go home and, you know, luckily you get to stay in the city. If not, you drive two hours to right. Vallejo or another city that you go. What we also have is massive amounts of unused warehouse space and areas zoned for the kind of production that you can do with cannabis. Hmm. So I know you've, uh, you know, perused a vape pen before, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, the production that you need to actually make the 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 oil for those the yeah the thc oil thc oil there's some other name for it i can't remember but the thc oil you, you don't need like a ton of space to do that mm. you need a warehouse you need a co2 machine essentially and you need space to set up the uh you know the plants and the grow but you can essentially conceptualize these as like sort of small production breweries or mm. wineries 
Right. That, that is the comparison that I use when I talk about setting up these sort of small scale. Like you can have a microbrewery. I mean, how many microbreweries are in San Francisco? Why can't we have micro cannabis breweries? It works the same way. Absolutely. And again, with the point regarding the middle class, then you have all of these going back to sort of the butterfly effect as well of this equity uh, plan. Then all of a sudden you have uh, you need workers, you need janitors, you need people in those factories, you need managers. And and a lot of these jobs are union jobs. I mean, right. we're talking about good, solid union jobs as part of the uh, uh, the regulation in San Francisco. You do need to sign a labor peace agreement, uh, which is essentially saying you will uh, abide by collective bargaining should your employees choose to form a union. Uh, there are unions forming among cannabis workers, uh, I think fairly quickly uh, mm-hmm. as you know they become more integrated into the workforce but i mean these are solid union jobs you know uh, even a, being a bud tender right just someone who works at the counter you know you're starting out at minimum twenty dollars an hour here in right. san francisco and the sky's the limit for growth because these companies are exploding you can really get yourself into a role uh, and then find yourself, you know, being a CEO of a cannabis company within a couple of years just by understanding the market. It's a tremendous opportunity. So you you alluded to before previously, you said that the permit office for this is pretty much slammed at this point. People are super excited to get their permit filled out and everything. What are the the obstacles right now? Is it is it, is there a permit slowdown? Is you know, it, what are the troubles that people are experiencing actually doing this? And does that then also, you know, because the only, these are not the only people trying to get into the weed business. Are moneyed companies mm-hmm, mm-hmm. winning that, yes. that war then because the because so many people are trying to get in on the business yep. with this equity program? What, what's going on there? All right. So the first part of your question, uh, you know, you're relating to the Office of Cannabis and kind of the slowdowns we've been experiencing with the permitting process. Right off the bat, I want to shout out the Office of Cannabis of San Francisco. They are tremendous, tremendous workers. Uh, They really do truly care about equity. And that's clear in our conversations with them. They really do put equity first in the cannabis industry in San Francisco. They are wonderful people. They are four people. (laughs) And there are 300, as of right now, people in line attempting to get these permits through. Right. And that might be okay if you were able to, let's say, float the rent for a period of months. But due to the circumstances of cannabis, you are unable to do that. Uh, You can't get a bridge loan from any bank. No one's going to give you one. Uh, your landlord is very, 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 very unlikely to give you any sort of leeways, um, you know, the kind of things that you would find in commercial real estate anywhere else. You simply won't find them there. Right. And we're in San Francisco, so, I mean, this is the most expensive commercial real estate in the country. Oof. Uh, I can give an example. I was looking at a really nice spot, 1250 square feet in Japantown, which is in Fillmore, like a nice little retail boutique sort of place that you'd see. I uh, had a wonderful meeting with the guy. We had breakfast and I'm like, all right, so what's the square footage? What's the uh, monthly? And he said, yeah, man, it's going to be $25,000 a month. Oh my <laughs> God. That's and honestly, it should be illegal. Why'd that is insane. I, I just looked at him like, yeah. why don't you call me, man? Why? You know, I can't do that. <laughs> like, you wasted no the way. time. You made me drink this shit coffee. You're bringing me down here. Like, no. <laughs> and that, so that's the level of, like, pure oh my God. we were dealing with, especially two or three years ago when the market was really frothy with people looking to get into these spaces. 
And frankly, because you need a lease to make the application, people will sign uh, bad terms. So this right. is where we find ourselves. So people are people are going broke yes. trying to get a permit because they're paying rent on a place that they can't actually sell product at for months. And so let's expand that, right? The people yeah. who qualify for this program don't have very much money. That's part yeah. of the point. One right, of the qualifications right. is you make under the median wage in San Francisco, which is insane as a family of four. It's like $108,000. So, I mean, most people, working people in San Francisco fall under that rubric. So that's an easy one. Yeah. Okay. But now you're floating rent at the most expensive prices without the ability to activate the space of right. the poorest people in the city cohort. And the only way that you, Ugh. as an equity applicant, can continue operations is to sell off equity in your share. It's just so sadly ironic that you have to go broke to even try to get to the middle class, and you don't know if it's going to work out. But you have to go. You have to go so far in the hole. So when you do start turning a profit, you probably have three hundred thousand dollars in debt, and it's going to be another you know thirty years before you can even see a dime. Well, this is also a, you know a, one of the major things. You make an excellent point there. One, people think cannabis is much more profitable than it is. It does okay, but right. due to all the taxation, and that's not just like the city and state taxes, there's also this regulation in the IRS code called 280E, which mm. is essentially uh, that drug dealers can't write off their uh, their tax losses. And so when you say drug dealer, in the eyes of the federal government, even yep. if you're in Colorado or San Francisco, LA, wherever it's legal, they're still <laughs> drug dealers, okay. Yeah, by the IRS code, sure. Uh, yeah, you're a drug dealer, so you can't write off your taxes. Now, what that means is cannabis businesses are essentially double taxed because you can't write off any of the expenses that you would write, even if you were running a vape company or a tobacco company mm. or something similar. So you're being taxed um, 25% plus that uh, the 280E where you can't do write-offs. It's very difficult to get profitability. You need to hit scale right. and you need to establish a brand. It's an incredibly difficult industry. Like, this is something that we've had to explain to the city politicians because they have this idea that it's just like, all right, you set up and like, here's my jaws of weed and I'm going to sell them. And no, this is one of the most right. regulated products in like the most regulated state in the country. It's incredibly complicated. You need to have a knowledge of supply chain management, of, you know, regulatory procedure, of, you know, high level business management. And stuff like that, which frankly, most equity applicants do not have. Right. And so you're operating from a position of not intellectual, but like experiential deficit. When mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're partnering with people who ostensibly know what they're talking about and they can use all these business words and, you know, present you with all these options to get you as the equity applicant to lose, you know, ownership shares in the actual firm. And right. so the complexity of one, the regulation, but two, the business itself combined with the length of uh, the permitting and the cost of rent and operations in San Francisco, I mean, has led to the unfortunate situation where a lot of these people are, in fact, going broke and are right. having to sell off large stakes in their business to even get to the point of possibly opening. Well, that is just a, a another indicator that there's something extremely flawed with our system right now where people are going broke as they're trying to achieve the American dream. Yeah. 
When I talk about Stamps.com, I always wonder who in the world still goes to the post office and why. Stamps.com brings the post office right to you. Thanks to Stamps.com, we here at LPN can spend less time fighting traffic to the post office to ship out merch and more time making the shows you love. Especially during the holidays, when the post office is extra busy with people sending holiday cards and gifts. That's why you need Stamps.com. Anything you can do at the post office, you can do at Stamps.com. Stamps.com eliminates trips to the post office and saves you money with discounts that you can't even get at the post office. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Not to mention, it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It's no wonder over 700,000 small businesses like the Last Podcast Network already use Stamps.com. Don't spend a minute of your holiday season at the post office this year. Sign up for Stamps.com instead. There's no risk, and with my promo code TOPAP, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Top Hat. That's Stamps.com. Enter Top Hat. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. When it comes to the federal government, um, obviously weed is much more prevalent than ever before. Mm -hmm. Major League Baseball, for example, just allowed players to smoke weed. They're trying to cut back on opioids. A lot of players have died, or at least one pitcher in particular uh, passed away because of an opioid Mm -hmm. uh, overdose. So they're like, okay, you can do weed, but no more opioids. If the federal government legalized weed, do you feel... And like, let's just say like Anheuser-Busch or uh, Philip Morris or, you know, big tobacco or big alcohol. Do you feel like they would just run roughshod all over these smaller businesses? Is there a negative ramification to the legalization of weed federally, do you think? So personally, I don't because I believe that if and when federal legalization occurs, which I believe uh-huh. will probably be within the next 10 years, there will be a federal yeah. equity program attached alongside. So oh. Bernie Sanders has released probably the best cannabis platform as of yet, uh, where yep. he has been very explicit about equity. He has a you know an equity uh, plan built into his cannabis legalization. I mean, Biden – you know, he doesn't even want to uh, do decriminalization, right? You know, uh, you've got huge disparity between these, you know, these candidates. So it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, Biden's still spouting the gateway drug nonsense that we saw in all the Ronald Reagan 80s anti-drug commercials. It's yeah. just silly. It's just, right. it's silly. I mean, it's it's interesting. I always say this because you'll have people say, oh, well, you know, you legalize. This is an example. People say, you know, if you legalize it, there's going to be people driving around stoned all the time. Right. And I go. I have a secret for you. <laughs> the people that were driving around stoned have been doing so for right. 50 years. And you didn't notice. The new people who come on to start using cannabis generally are not the people that are like firing a joint down and then driving down to the store. 
They're much right. more concerned. They are aware of it as a regulated product, and they have information and understanding about it. This idea that the second you legalize, there's going to be a whole highway of people driving 25 miles an hour while Grateful Dead is streaming out of the window is just silly. It's a self-selection thing. Those people are right. already doing that. Well, I guess that's that's an interesting point. I, I have heard some people say they don't want legalization for that reason because currently police officers and I know they're they're figuring this out, mm -hmm. but currently police don't really have a way to indicate how stoned someone is. There isn't a breathalyzer for weed. Um, so, I guess, do you think if when legalization? Because I think you're right. Legalization is going to happen. I think within the next few years. Yes. Or is it going to have to correlate with some sort of law enforcement ability to judge or tell if someone is driving well high? I mean, I think that by the virtues of our system and the fact that we have a incredibly policed society means that, yes, by virtue of compromise, we will probably have to come up with uh, some sort of system uh, to you know figure out if people are driving around stoned. For me, I just find it kind of funny. Because I just think about all these boomers who are driving around zonked out of their minds on the best drug cocktails that you've ever yes. heard of. They're on hydrocodone <laughs> and Xanax at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Head to the golf course, baby. But you have no problem with that. Right? right. People slamming into, you know, drivers. But no, we have to have some sort of way to test if someone smoked a joint before they drove. Right. Uh, frankly, I think driving is dangerous no matter how you do it, especially. Oh, my God, I know. But so, uh, Sean, Sean Richards, back to, mm -hmm. uh, to his store, you know, he's one of the, is he the only person who has successfully, am I reading this right? You're like, correct. He's the only one who's successfully, uh, fulfilled the equity program. And he is, he has a partner, uh, that has sort of co-funded the whole yes. operation. He has a lot of responsibility and pressure on his shoulders, I imagine, because mm -hmm. this is a Petri dish. Yes. Pro experiment that will hopefully be replicated throughout the country once we do have Bernie Sanders in office. So, I mean, it, he has to, he, we, we're, we're going to be watching this individual pretty closely and seeing how this goes, right? It, 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 there's a lot of pressure here right. for this one store. There absolutely is. There's a lot of pressure for this one store. Now, this one store also happens to be in Haight-Ashbury, in San Francisco. So it's a very good location. It is the first yeah. cannabis store opening up on Haight-Ashbury. Let me take that. I think it might be the second cannabis store opening up on Haight-Ashbury. But that's a very good location. So like we're pretty confident about the success of that store. What we're right. more concerned with is getting this equity conversation nationwide. Uh, and you'd be surprised some of the areas that are developing equity programs. Uh, we were, for instance, looking into developing cannabis uh, dispensaries in Missouri, and mm -hmm. Missouri has a very robust equity program that they just passed. Uh, Oakland, California, right. where I live currently, has a great equity program. Long Beach, California. Uh, Chicago recently put forward in their legalization bill a very good equity program as well. Uh, and my native New Jersey, which is you know politically an absolute basket case – with Murphy not getting anything over the line. But right. one of the things that was holding up their cannabis legalization was a lack of equity policy. And right. that's desperately needed in New Jersey because the cities essentially have been destroyed over the past 30 years. Camden, Newark, Jersey City, 
not Hoboken. But, you know, those cities have essentially been denuded. So if we're going to rebuild them, we need cannabis. And I... I mean, this is my evangelical point that I bring out on this, like, because I am a cannabis sort of Johnny Appleseed. I really do think <laughs> that this is going to save our economy. And I believe that for these reasons. I worked in tech, and I realized that there's nothing keeping those companies around because their assets are digital. It's not like moving a factory. At least that's a pain in the ass. You can put a whole company on a flash drive and move it across the country. It's not an issue. We need to have something that's actually physical, that is producing physical products. And the fact of the matter is we have the best cannabis in the world in the United States. Right. We have some of the best growing places and the best, you know, to use the wine term, tail wow, for cannabis in the entire world. Right. Why is this not one of our major export commodities? We have to understand at this point, tobacco is not coming back. We can grow hemp as an export commodity, but people will pay a premium for California cannabis. Absolutely. We have the ability to be market leaders across the entire world and, you know, be the champagne of champagne of weeds. And that to me is such a beautiful vision. And it's something that I'm like, I think we could probably at least rebuild a section of the middle class with this. And it to me is beautiful. I'm interested to hear kind of a, I guess sort of a, a contradictory point here. Sure. When it comes to where these, where are these shops? Are these shops mm-hmm. going to be these cannabis stores? Are they going to be in the lower income neighborhoods? And if so, a lot of times we've heard, heard complaints about food deserts. You know, yes. there's just no good food around there. And then it's 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 delis and, and liquor stores. We don't even have delis in San Francisco. All the delis are closed. So it's just liquor stores and like just liquor stores. Is there any concern? Is there any concern that if you uh, have a shop in a place that is low income and you have liquor stores and weed stores there, is there any concern from the community that you've spoken to? Because, you know, these communities are not we always think about these communities as like super left. The African-American community can be extremely conservative. The Latino community can be extremely conservative, not very Catholic, very Christian. Is there any blowback from the communities being like, we don't need this weed store here? Uh, despite yeah. the, the best intentions on your part. Uh, yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, you raise an important point. I mean, the groups that we have brought into coalition here are not in political lockstep. Uh, <laughs> right. I come from the left personally. I'm a member of the Democratic Socialists of San Francisco. Uh, so I come from a much more, you know, book left perspective than the majority sure. of people that we work with. And there is absolute concern about that. The good news is, as part of the law, and this is a part of San Francisco policy as well, uh, whenever you are putting into uh, do any sort of development in San Francisco, you have to put out a mailer to anyone within 300 feet of the business, uh, as well as community places, uh, and they get the chance at your uh, committee meeting to object to your project. Okay. Anyone can object for any reason. And that will essentially create a second review where you now are going to have like a discretionary review alongside the planning commission. So in San Francisco specifically, these local communities have tremendous power to slow and hold development of uh, cannabis stores should they choose Uh to do so. Part of your uh, project when you are applying for the permit is actually to craft a good neighbor policy 
and a community betterment policy where you go out and you specifically liaise with these community people and you come up with a plan uh, for targeted reinvestment or you know something that you're going to work out with them that is included uh, as part of your application. So mm. the city has built that in because the fact of the matter is these uh, cannabis businesses are in the minority areas of San Francisco because that's how they were zoned. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the areas that are retail corridors in San Francisco are the minority areas. So there's just a there's a link there. But they also zoned the cannabis industry uh, alongside a heat map of cannabis arrests. So the effect kind of came out to, yes, essentially all the majority of the stores are in. Uh, in San Francisco's context, the South of Market area, which is one of the denser uh, downtown areas that's uh, pretty heavily minority, specifically Filipino, uh, Babies Hunters Point, which is African-American. And then certain segments right. of the city have zero dispensaries in them at all uh, because certain right. you know community groups have been able to effectively, uh, for instance, uh, the Chinese community in Chinatown in San Francisco has a blanket ban on cannabis business in their district and – that's enforced. You know, it's not even a conversation. Right. So there is immense control there in these areas. Alex, I'm wondering, what do you think? And I want to hear your expertise on this, obviously working in, on the political side of this. Mm -hmm. When it comes to Donald Trump, I would not be surprised if he just makes an executive order to legalize <laughs> weed yeah. a day before the election. I swear to God, this man, <laughs> I, I, I would be like, OK, thank you. But you still have to go. Yes. Do you who do you think is are the Democrats or the Republicans? Who do you? Are you surprised maybe with some of the more conservative support for cannabis legalization? There is a wing of the Republican Party that is more like, you know, live and let live and, you know, whatever it might be, um, which is good in theory. Um, but, but, but of course, they can also be extremely oppressive. But do you feel like both parties, do you think this is a, is a bipartisan issue at this point? Or do you feel like the left is still the ones driving uh, the car? So I would say it's bipartisan if for the fact that one of the major uh, cannabis lobbyists is John Bader, That's former true. Speaker of the House. Very good point. <laughs> I mean, it, at this point, the people who understand what cannabis is going to be, which is essentially people who have an understanding of business, right? I hate to always business, right? But like, you have to have an understanding of, of scaling business. The people who see that, which is at this point, a lot of Democrats who are business people and lawyers and all that, also oh, Republicans, yes. frankly, they view the tax increase. They see the tax yeah. revenue. Uh, and this is the way that I've always put it. As soon as you start getting a shot in the arm of $80 million a year in tax revenue from cannabis, which I think is yeah. what Colorado pulled in last year. It might have been more. Same for in California, I think it's over a billion in tax revenue. Jeez. Once you've got that shot in the arm, it's not coming out. Right. That's just the reality of the situation. So they can bluster and talk about, oh, it's a gateway drug. They can do this. But as soon as they start seeing these actual middle class union jobs popping up in their community, they don't see right. any sort of like moral degeneracy. And they see how much people really, really, really like weed. They basically are just like, okay. But really, I mean, it is uh -huh. it, it is a PR spin thing yes. because – it's just, I mean, speaking of terroir and wine, wine the wine industry for years has been trying to re-educate the American public on what wine is, 
what types of wine there are. I mean, kind of tricking you into thinking, oh, I got to try a different wine tonight from a different region of France. Uh, you know, oh, I got to try a different varietal tonight. Like champagne is different from sparkling wine. I know this because Wayne's World. You know, exactly. like, uh, exactly. it, it really is about re-educating the American uh, public yeah. about what what weed is and getting comfy with the idea of uh, of weed as an agricultural product mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not this so. mystical um i don't know black tar heroin that the only the black community and the uh, latino communities use right it's going to make you listen to jazz and mary white yeah yeah whatever. yeah it's that's absolutely right so i mean i often point to the wine industry to the craft coffee industry to the craft beer industry to i don't know fuck it, kombucha right yes I mean, these are regional specific products that are tied to an area and have a quality to them because of that area and those have right. immense immense value i mean there's a reason that you can't sell you know parmesan cheese that's not at, from from parma right or you know of these things so when people start to get this idea of it as like oh it's like a superfood like i'm trying a a delicious you know northern triangle uh kush but now you know once we get interstate shipping going over uh now we can do let's try an oregon you know an oregon sativa and and do that because frankly they're the same you could go to a party and bring a pack of joints in the same way that you could bring a flight of uh, bottles of wine, and frankly, you'll be better to drive quicker, and your arguments will be better. You make a good point about interstate commerce, and this is another one of my concerns when it comes to federal legalization, which mm-hmm. I am for. Um, but one of the concerns that we have to be sure that we don't fall into is what happens with alcohol and beer, mm-hmm. specifically. There's a great documentary called Beer Wars. Basically, small craft breweries are fighting for 1% yes. of the trucks that are already owned by, again, these massive corporations, Coors, Anheuser-Busch. Is it a concern if it is legalized federally that, again, these massive companies, they get all the interstate licenses and everything that you're working so hard to attain here when it comes to trying to equalize the devastating effects of the war on drugs, specifically economically, are you concerned that it's just all going to be wiped away? Yes, tremendously. I'm tremendously concerned about that uh, because we live under capitalism. And without structures such as the equity programs, such as these state initiatives that are designed to frankly force investors to act in a certain way then cannabis will absolutely become a commodity in the same way that uh tobacco was i mean altria and rj reynolds and these companies are the ones that have billions of dollars in operating capital to float leases to float permitting processes to set up production in a way that small businesses simply do not Right. And I just have a feeling, you know, going back to just history of this country, it's go- the law is going to end up being written by the corporation. Yes. That's it. And it's going to be signed and they won't even read the damn thing. This because, is where you know, I I'm will disagree cap- with you. Man. This is where I will disagree. OK, because we are writing these laws now. And that is the point of the equity program, which is, yes, industry does come in, but we are also right. at the table. And because the permit belongs to the equity applicant and not the business, the equity applicant has massive leverage over these corporations. And so if you have an equity program like we have here in San Francisco, you do not simply have the corporations writing the regulation. You have the corporations writing the regulation because that happens, but they have to do it with the equity folks. And that is the difference. Even on a federal level, though, 
You don't think the federal law would trump the state law? Well, it definitely will. This is why if we're hoping, you know, for a federal legalization, you know, I'm hoping it'll be under a Sanders administration who will be much more open to, you know, having a federal equity program. Right. I, I would say given that the state laws are older and have they're like quite Byzantine and the federal government can't like really do anything. I would say they're probably more likely to just let states set their own equity programs with a federal guideline than there mm-hmm, is likely mm-hmm. to be an actual federal equity program. That that would be my guess. That would be uh, the absolute best. I mean, obviously, I'm a capitalist, but I also don't agree with the late stage capitalism that we're in right now. Amazon has destroyed small businesses, and uh, I think we could see that happening. If marijuana is legalized as well, I just and it's devastating. I mean, you you look at what happened with radio when Clear Channel was able to just Absolutely. run roughshod all over the country, destroy that industry. Amazon destroyed the book industry and is currently destroying small businesses all over this country. Something has to be done. Regulations have to be put in place. Well, let me give you an example um, for one of the good knock on effects of the cannabis industry. And you'll okay. see this anywhere that you have a legal cannabis industry. Do you know what are thriving alt weekly newspapers? Because you can't advertise cannabis online, you can't advertise it on TV, Mm. but you can do it in print. And so these local newspapers that have been denuded for 15 years are flourishing again. There are so many ways that we can rechannel the money, the massive, massive amounts of money that are going to be generated by this commodity into positive things. And not even through policy, just I mean, I guess that is a virtue of policy, right? They didn't even think about that. But how many of these local newspapers are going under? All of them. Print is dead. Yeah, absolutely. If you go and look at a cannabis area, the weeklies are doing great. Frankly, if we work the laws, I mean, like, why not use it to fund public access television? Why not do it? Yeah, absolutely. Cultural and arts funding. The phrasing that I come back to, and this is part of our policy piece, is people, places, and spaces. We need to invest in people. So that's people that were you know, incarcerated and taken away. They lack resources and capital, right? The places, which are the places they frequented, so the businesses that lost their business and lost their of course, and the public spaces, which are our parks and our areas that have been essentially destroyed. I mean, you can't even right. have people hang out in public anymore. So those are the things in these communities that must, must, must be the primary target of reinvestment. Absolutely. And so just, I guess, kind of my last question is, as I learned from the NFL, referees don't like to be wrong. Um, And that is a small, small amount of power they have compared to law enforcement. Law enforcement does not like to admit they're wrong. uh, It's very difficult to even get them convicted of wrongdoing if they have been on camera uh, seen shooting someone. Yes. But so when it comes to what does it look like, let's say it's legal. You're in prison for a drug offense. Uh, what does that process look like of getting those people out of lockup? How does that work? How long does that mm-hmm. take? I mean, you can imagine the red tape uh, that goes along with our judicial system and our legal system. Getting someone out of jail is not going to happen overnight. Do you have any insight into what that transition process looks like? It's much easier said than done, I would assume. Uh, I mean, I have personally pretty limited insight because I, I haven't like been engaging on the legal end of that. Uh, I would say it's probably going a lot slower than it should be, given yeah. that you have people that are literally incarcerated for something that my partners are doing 
you know, every day, which is selling cannabis, right? Right. You're in jail for something that I, you know, that we're doing every day. It's not happening quickly enough. And it needs to be a much higher um, issue in the public's eye. And it is something that we focus on in our outreach, which is just like, this is just patently unfair. All of this is patently unfair. And getting people to understand that and then reintegrate that into their own dealings with the state and with this Mm. product is crucial. And Travis and I were talking about this, I think, two weeks ago or so. Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily just about the marijuana arrest. Oftentimes, weed will be used as the excuse for illegal search. Every time. So I also feel like. Um, I mean, hell, I, we reference this regularly. It's one of the saddest things I've seen on Facebook ever was the shooting death of Philando Castile, where yes. the officer, Geronimo Yanez, or something, I think it's Yanez, um, says he smelled weed. He said, oh, my God, there's a four-year-old, four-year-old in the back. Anyone that would smoke weed around a child, even though there was no weed found, um, being there was no joint being that was lit, mm-hmm. um, he's like, well, I, I, I feel scared enough to shoot this man. Um I, I wonder if there's a way, and maybe this isn't a question for you, but perhaps I'm just asking this sort of uh, to the audience as well. Mm-hmm. There's a way that we could, if your arrest was triggered because of a search for weed, no matter what they find, I wonder if that record should also be expunged because that arrest should have never been made. That seizure should have never been made. It's unconstitutional. Yeah, that's kind of what I was about to ask as yeah. well. Is like, does the, for all its goodness and all and positive intentions, do you think that the... Does the equity program go far enough? Does it have enough far-reaching sort of goals? Um, or is the in its current iteration, good, good as it is, good as it may be, is it compromised in any way? Or is this is this sort of a curtailed version of what ultimately your uh, organization wants to do to a greater extent? Yes. So you've got the nail right on the head. Any policy that comes out in a multi-stakeholder environment like San Francisco is going to be by definition of slightly compromised. You're going to have giveaways, you're going to have compromises made for any number of things. We are constantly agitating City Hall and the Board of Supervisors uh, to get different provisions added to uh, the equity program, to get things removed, language clarifications, that sort of thing, because it's not, it does not go far enough. Now, this is my personal opinion, so this is not the opinion of the San Francisco Equity Group. Here's my blue sky. What I would love is a, a federal co-op model, which is similar to what Bernie Sanders has uh, put forward in his cannabis policy, which is encouraging ways to make these businesses co-ops. That's what I would like. I would like to see right. essentially regional markets with uh, with cooperative structures in place so that it's uh-huh. very easy to form a co-op. It's very easy to... Uh, be a co-op with your own distributor, with your own farm, with your own uh, supply chain. That, to me, is how I view, you know, the best possible version. Yeah. What I think that we will get is a hybrid state, ca- not state, but a hybrid social capital model, which is essentially yeah. what we have. And I think yeah. we, but we have mm-hmm. to arrive, in my opinion, I think we have to arrive at very solid ideas about what this will look like at a federal level before Anheuser-Busch basically becomes exactly. literally Bud Light selling. They'll, they'll become Anheuser-Busch, exactly. right? Yes. Exactly. Because that exactly. is going to be so bitterly ironic for those people whose lives have been ruined to see that stuff on a grocery store shelf. Absolutely. 
and uh, to not have been given chance at reparation. Absolutely. Think if your uncle, right, is locked up for another 15 years and you walk past a white guy walking into a wheat shop. I mean, absolutely. How are you supposed to integrate that? How are you supposed to look at that and be like, I live in a just society. Right. Absolutely. And of course, the uncle who's locked up can you can only imagine when they hear on the inside that weeds become legal (laughs) as they're staring out their window and staring at bars um, that they call a door. So, Alex Fabian, thank you so much for being here, man. This has been really informative. I think the audience learned a lot. And Travis and I also learned me, a lot. Me too, yes. Um, so again, Alex Fabian, he is a strategic advisor uh, to the San Francisco Equity Group. Check them out. Support this stuff. This is a movement I cannot support more. We got weed legalization. And it's not just for all the fun. Oh, great. Nice to be stoned and watch a movie. All that stuff is cute. All that stuff is awesome. But this is about criminal justice reform. This is about justice. This is about the Constitution being actually... Live, live up to the Constitution because right now uh, people are incarcerated that shouldn't be and these people that have their neighborhoods ruined, they need to get justice. And if you're in San Francisco this Saturday, I guess people should go to Sean Richard's new dispensary. Yeah. The grand Burners. opening of Burners on Hate is uh, going to be uh, on Saturday. Doors are opening at 8 a.m. Uh, Wiz Khalifa will be there. Hell uh, yeah. Snoop Dogg. Uh, <laughs> honestly, that was the whitest wow. way I've ever heard anyone say Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg? Snoop Dogg? This is my job. <laughs> my job is to be like the white dude in the room who's like, I'm fancy to meet you, Snoop Dogg. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Alex. This has been awesome, dude. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for hosting me. Uh, hopefully I'll get to come back and keep talking to you guys about cannabis equity policy. About the social justice movements we're making as it continues to go um i would love to have you uh back on you know as when all the policies start coming through and all that kind of stuff we uh, we correspondent all right everyone there it was our interview with alex fabian i learned quite a bit yeah i mean can you imagine like imagine thinking imagine being like a french winemaker and then mm. having your past be like yeah, my my grandfather used to sell ripe uh, ripened grapes on the street corners, and when he went to prison for twenty years, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then it became legal, and uh, I was able to make Cabernet Sauvignon legally. And uh, I mean, that really we yeah. we do need to start thinking of weed as just just an agricultural product, absolutely. And uh, just yeah, th- this is such a soft version of reparations too. Absolutely, like, it it actually makes so much sense, and you know, good on them and good luck because. This is going to be the, the blueprint for the rest of the country. And it's going to be an uphill battle because those large corporations, big tobacco, big alcohol, they want to get their money. They want to get their hands on this money. It's going to be hard. I, I think there, there needs to be a good rollout uh, in order for people to be, I don't know, accepting of. I, I agree. Immediately it's, people hear reparations. Absolutely. Which is not, you know, not a word that's really used in this, but it's like that's – this is a – you know, applying a salve to something that an injury that was that was uh, that is generational. It's all about the branding. Okay, everyone, have a wonderful holiday. Whatever you're celebrating, whatever holiday you're celebrating, if you're or not celebrating, I don't know. Uh, be safe. Have fun. If you're in a fight with your family, just go to the bar or something. You know, no need to stress out too much over that stuff. And uh, we are excited to speak with you further in 2020. This year, 2020 is going to be crazy. Uh, so gear up, put your big boy pants on, get your 
get a little Teflon suit because it's going to be rough and uh, God knows what's going to happen. Hopefully the polling data can kind of turn around for the Dems, but we, we shall see what happens. A lot of time left before November. Okay, everyone, hail yourselves. We'll talk to you soon. Guess what, fans of the last podcast network? The story must be told just got a Patreon. Patreon.com slash TSMBT. That's right. Pay for access to brand new, world-changing, state-of-the-art religious truths that exist solely behind a paywall. The story must be told. We still release free stories every other week. They're scary, funny, gross, weirdly sentimental. But now we can separate our listeners based on income. <laughs> Everyone gets the story must be told for free. But if you subscribe, you get the 522 Club, a podcast where we just chit-chat the story and all its truths. Like... What fluid will the church of the story ban next? Maybe nut milk, maybe vape juice, maybe blood. You'll have to give us your money to find out. Head to patreon.com slash TSMBT to subscribe for bonus content or listen to The Story Must Be Told for free every other week on your favorite podcast app. The Story Must Be Told. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Yeah.